think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, and welcome to episode 11 of The Boys in Short Pants, the 12th episode. Uh, we've had a pretty busy news week this week with, uh, with a federal budget coming down, a uh, Saskatchewan budget coming down, a uh, showdown in the House of Commons. Uh, uh, elections ramping up in BC. That's true. A media kerfuffle in, uh, in the province of Quebec, uh, my home province, and Etienne's ancestral province, I suppose. Um, uh, some updates in the NDP leadership race. There was uh, another leadership debate today, the 26th, the Sunday. And uh, Etienne will share a story uh, from his time in government. So we've got yeah, a, I guess it's only it's only time. A, a good episode for you today. So the federal budget came down this week, and as you know, as as it goes, there there were a lot of takes on the budget. Uh, we are not going to do a budget take really because there wasn't a whole lot in there. I guess this is kind of our budget take, and that we're like you know not yeah, talking about it too much. It's but. something that the budget itself was pretty un. Unentertaining. Yeah, it's that there have already been a million takes. We're a little late to the show. Yeah, and if you want to find, you know, your analysis from X angle or Y angle, yeah. I'm sure those pieces are well written yeah. by people much more financially literate than myself. And also, like, full. I just really haven't really had time to look through it very fulsomely. So I, you know, I'm going off the media headlines. I couldn't really add a whole lot more than what I've read. Anyway, so we want to talk more about the sort of process of how budgets come out on the day of and what that looks like from the political side and especially the government side. Yeah, so what I think a lot of people might be familiar with is, first of all, how big of a deal the budget is, that the budget is announced or announced at around four o'clock usually yeah. with uh, a speech by Minister of Finance and the House of Commons. And the wearing reason, new shoes, of course. Wearing new shoes, which of course the tradition is every year. I, this this dates back a couple of years. Now. Well, they actually don't know. There's a library. Of, there is actually a Library of Parliament research report that tried to figure out like when this started, and there's no real clear origin on the the budget shoes thing. Do you know anything about more no shoes this year? No, no. So every year, the finance minister for his budget goes out and buys a pair of new shoes, and the shoes have become symbolic of sort of what direction the budget is heading. So in previous years. Ministers have bought running shoes or fancy shoes or this shoes or that shoes. Uh, I think one even bought a pair of work boots. That was yeah, the Alberta a, finance minister for the first uh, NDP budget there. Yeah, as, yeah. as a way to sort of symbolize like in, in a pair of shoes as footwear what your budget is. Yeah. If my it, budget it makes, were a pair of shoes, it would be... <laughs> it makes great work for communication. Monk straps, people. monk straps. <laughs> <laughs> so it comes out at four o'clock by the Minister of Finance, but that entire day is filled with budget shenanigans up until that point. Yeah, And I think there's some really interesting things that go on behind the scenes, uh, most notably the lockup, which I think is mentioned in every news broadcast, but no one ever really digs down into the lockup and how it works. Um, conceptually, it's the idea that you literally lock a bunch of people in the room and you can give them an early copy of the budget. So some of the budget lockups, because the budget's coming out at 4 p.m., some of the budget lockups start as early as 9... I think it's 9 for media. Yeah, 9... And then it's the early afternoon for uh, the stakeholders. Stakeholders, as well as there's a lockup for MP staff. Yeah. And there's a lockup for partisan ministerial staff, uh, generally. Mm -hmm. I. So when, when I'm talking about this, I'm going to presume that the Liberals are running lockup and budget day roughly the same. And a lot of it's coordinate, coordinated by the finance department, so it's pretty consistent between governments. Yeah, that would make sense. Um, so there's like about a dozen, perhaps a little less, different locations around Ottawa that are doing various lockups. Some are in government buildings, some are in parliament, they're all over the place. Mm -hmm. And these are largely led by finance staff. Who basically, when you get in the room, or to get in the room, you have to hand over your cell phone uh, and any electronic devices. For um, stakeholders and stuff, there are exemptions for laptops, mm -hmm. so that laptops can be used to write stories and analysis of it while you're locked in the room all sure, day. Makes that, sense. That's generally what media does, so that when they're released at 4 o'clock as the budget is tabled, they can literally hit send and all the stories are published. Right. Um, so what happens from a staffer perspective is that people might be surprised to know that ministers effectively know nothing about the budget, uh, with, with the exception of finance and prime minister's office, right. prior to going into their own quote-unquote lockup, which is a cabinet meeting just before uh, the budget. So they literally, cabinet uh, assembles 
in the second floor of the House of Commons, and that's when they get first crack at it, and they get their own copy of the budget documents about an hour before, and that's around the same time that a lot of uh, MP st- or MP and minister staff go into their respective lockups. Mm-hmm. So I did the lockup a couple years ago, and I went with a colleague of mine, and we had two different objectives. My objective was to do Quebec-centric issues because my minister being from Quebec was going to have to speak right. to the Quebec side of it. And then my colleague, who's a policy advisor, went into the budget with uh, the numbers that we had asked for. And coming out of it, he was to cross-reference everything we'd asked for and to find sort of what asks we had that came through and which ones didn't, as, right. as no department gets everything they asked for. And so you come in with good news or bad news, and you say, hey, our department got nothing, or we got 50% of what we asked for. And then... As the finance minister stops speaking, you get the opportunity to take your minister aside and you have to rush brief him. Yeah. You have to brief him on, you literally sit down, here's what our department got, um, here's our take on it, here's what our media lines on it are going to be. And then from the other side, you then go into the regional aspect of it because particularly for a Quebec minister, there weren't very many. Mm-hmm. You say, here is what Quebec is getting. Here's the media lines for Quebec. Sometimes the political staff in the finance minister's office had prepared sort of uh, talking points per region already, summarizing and highlighting sort of the, the page on the budget that right. you'd want to look at. And of course, they've got more time to do it. Yeah, because they have it they've for been to the process and days and days ahead of time. So there are sort of pre-made talking points that you're able to pick up as you go in. Um, but frankly... Budget lockup was, I think I was in there for two hours, and we had exhausted everything we wanted to do in it within an hour. Yeah. And then there was just a lot of sitting around, literally waiting waiting to go out of the room. Because you're looking at, you're not looking through financial details, you're not doing calculations, you're saying, this is the money we got, Here, yeah. here's our talking points, yeah. let's go prep the minister for it. If you're it. an opposition staffer, you may have more like pocket calculators out because you're trying to look for you know trends or patterns, that kind of thing. I guess when you're in government, you have that more kind of done for you, and you're just there to, like, announce the goods or yeah. cushion the bads, as the case may be. Yeah, when you're in opposition, you're looking for, you know, where has money been cut from? Yeah. the all, gotchas. Really. All, all the gotchas. Where's money been bounced from? Uh, X billion here, X billion there. When you're in government, it's what are we spending money on? This is what we're going to be talking about. Mm-hmm. So from the budget lockup, we get, we get released from the budget lockup, and you literally run to the hill. The minister is just coming out uh, from the speech from the finance minister. You pull him aside to his office, you brief him up real quick, and then he gets immediately onto the phone and starts doing pre-arranged media veils all across the province, where you're saying, hey, this is the good news for Quebec, largely for us. It was all Quebec-centric media. And was that like outside of his portfolio as well? Um, in terms of Quebec, well, yeah, the Quebec stuff, like just like Quebec goodies, generally speaking, like new money for snowmobile trails, <laughs> and not just like new, I don't know. Yeah, it's every, everything related to Quebec. Yeah, when, I was when, gonna say because like your minister was not exactly like a handout goodies kind of portfolio. So no, so in that budget, we did get you know there were millions of millions upon millions of dollars invested in RCMP, CSIS, CBSA, some of these. Right. But, but that's like less regionally significant. It's less regionally significant, but when you're doing calls with Quebec media, that's yeah. not what they want to hear. Exactly. About. They, they want to hear, hear about, about snowmobile like, trails. Yes, what is <laughs> not that because that won't be in the budget, but literally what has the province of Quebec benefited from this? Yeah. So uh, an example of this would be something along the lines of like investment in Bombardier. Right. Or any of, you know, these big ticket items that the province is looking for or investment in infrastructure sometimes like, uh, bridges are named or transit no not snowmobile <laughs> trails <laughs> although snowmobiles are a favorite forehand a favorite handout and also a bombardier product it's true double down on that support yeah. on that support for uh, bombardier yeah so it's just i i think it's interesting to see the budget from the other side of the table and like knowing just how frantic of a day it is and how little information often ministers have on the budget when they are sent to go speak to media on it. And this is kind of like, we we sort of talked about this before or kind of talked around it. There's a lot of fog of war in government. Yes. Um, So when you, you, like we talked about this when uh, Karina Gold got her uh, mandate letter. Yeah. I was very adamant that like, oh, you know, she accepted the job. She must have known for sure. And Etienne said, no, like, she probably didn't know that they were killing uh, electoral reform. Turns out I was wrong and Etienne was, was correct. That she, yeah, yeah you, you earned it. You earned it. 
that she had not in fact known as it got leaked in a, a taped conversation with her parliamentary secretary in Nova Scotia. Um, so yeah, there, there's a lot of stuff that even people at high levels of government don't really know what's going on a lot of the time. The PMO is really the only organ of government that really has all the cards. Yeah, very, very and much so. And even then, like, you know, it's a big shop and different people are going to know different things within that. Yeah, especially on something as critical as budget where the details of this are highly, highly guarded. Yeah, exactly. You gen- Ministers generally have no idea what they're getting until they sit down in the room. Yeah. Because, you know, these this impacts investment yeah. decisions. Well, budget secrecy is and, like, yeah, it's paramount. Like, at, super, super important. Yeah, it's probably the most important thing because of the possibility for stocks to go up and down, for money to be lost and made. So anytime yeah. uh, budget secrecy is invoked, it is need-to-know basis. Yeah. There is no one else pulled yeah. into that. Circle. Part of the reason they do the budget in the afternoon, like at four, is because that way, like if there is going to be some fallout in in markets, for instance, it will be limited, and people will have the time to like you know sleep on it. They'll have the time to do whatever spin they need to do, damage control or otherwise. Yeah, it's and, when it's uh, when the TSX closes is yeah. why it's timed that way. Yeah, so that. That's why, uh, if you've ever wondered why they do budget speeches in the late afternoon. Yeah. Uh, Notable with this budget speech, though, and I guess this draws us into our second topic of conversation, was that whilst uh, Canadian political watchers were on pins and needles waiting for it, it was actually being somewhat filibustered slash delayed. It was delayed, delayed. yeah, like 15 minutes or so? Yeah, by a joint effort of, I think the Conservatives and the NDP were both in it. yeah. Um, partly in protest to uh, the parliamentary reform shenanigans that are going on. Yeah, and you can hear our take on that in uh, last week's episode, episode ten, guerrilla on guerrilla leadership. On guerrilla leadership. Yeah. Um, but there was also a, a couple points of privilege, which are when MPs invoke their yes. special privileges um, as MPs to not be obstructed on the way. Yeah. I believe Lisa Raitt um, said she was halted. Uh, so that the PM's empty motorcade could pass, mm. causing her delay and then to miss the vote. And yeah. so there had to be, uh, she she is able to stand up and speak. And points of privilege are of the foremost yeah, in so terms of parliamentary precedence. procedure. Yeah, exactly. So if you're stalled going in, you can basically interrupt everything. Budget speech, YOLO, you're getting pushed back yeah. so that you can speak about getting delayed by the motorcade. Yeah, Yvonne got into a similar thing where uh, he was an NDP MP, the NDP MP from New Brunswick uh, for, for quite a long time, where he was uh, delayed by an RCMP officer who, did, he, he was a big advocate for francophone rights and official languages, and he, like, the, the RCMP officer apparently didn't speak French, so he was like, oh, I've been... Uh, Harassed in English by uh Okay, so Yeah, you probably remember this better than I so do. So this uh, this is kind of your beat, I guess. This is story time because I did this and I worked on this. Um this is a hilarious story. In that so you you uh Godin is a old or he he's no longer an MP, but he's an yeah. old MP from New Brunswick. Yeah. And he came into the house and argued that the RCMP, who are in charge of Parliament Hill security outside of the actual house. Yeah had wrongly delayed him whilst a uh, world leader's motorcade and motorcycles and all that were going across the street. Right. And he said this was a breach of his parliamentary privilege. And so everyone took this very seriously, and it's taken to committee. And Commissioner Paulson, uh, who's the the commissioner of the RCMP, is called to committee to testify and defend the actions of his officer. And so there are... Claims made by Godin that the uh, that the officer had said inappropriate things to him, something along the lines of "I don't care who you are, like you're you're gonna wait" sort of thing. And Godin got in very much a huff about this. Committee was hilarious. Godin goes off on a tear, like bashing it and sort of hyping up his story and exaggerating it. And then Commissioner Paulson came in very coolly with a tape, with a videotape of security camera footage of the event. And what the what the tape showed was that Godin had been obstructed for something like thirty seconds while cars pass, like very reasonably, and that him and the officer had never exchanged remotely as many words as Godin's story would have had you believe. And so uh, it came to the allegation by Godin. He he then followed up by asking Commissioner Paulson whether he had doctored the tape. Oof, that's never a good look. So basically, the, the fake news 
uh, lash out defense. He was like, yeah. have, have you sped up this tape at all? Oh, as, if, as if it had been, you know, this five-minute delay or something. It, it was roughly the amount of delay that a stoplight would have caused you. Like, it was entirely reasonable, and it sort of lost steam and fell apart after that. Not, and not a good look, Evo. Not a good look. It, it was hilarious to be there and see him walk that back and be like, did, did you doctor this tape? <laughs> like, accusing the commissioner of the RCMP of pettily yeah. doctoring a tape for his own benefit. Yeah, that would be kind of... Like, what? Yeah, anyway, that would be silly. Um, so back to... Yeah, to come back to PROC. Yeah, back to Parliamentary Reform and Procedural and House Affairs Committee, which is often shortened to PROC, yes. P-R-O-C. <clears throat> um, what's going on is that the Liberals have, following on their uh, white paper on parliamentary reform, have decided to try and sort of push ahead with the process without all-party support. There are a lot of pieces in the parliamentary reform that both the NDP and the Conservatives disagree with. And typically, uh, sort of historically, parliamentary reform has been an exercise in consensus building. Yeah, exactly. Because the House is the master of its own domain, people, all the parties typically agree to parliamentary reforms before they take place. Yeah. It seems like the Liberals are not wanting to follow that and are trying to hammer through some of the changes they want. Yeah, and typically the reason you do that is because, A, it, it's basically like the nuclear option, right? Like, you don't want to start playing with the rules of the House when you're in a government because then when you're not in government, the other guys might do the same to you. Correct. So it's sort of like a mutually assured destruction thing. Uh, a little bit of perhaps game theory even. Yeah. You don't want to uh, start playing with the rules too much. Yeah, and it's respect for the institution saying yeah. that like like democratic reform, which requires a referendum, this is the equivalent one. You obviously wouldn't do a referendum on parliamentary reform because it's well, at, at be different done. different orders yeah. of magnitude, different different problems. The referendum on Friday sittings would be kind of like yeah. this time. It, it's not it's not a thing even though they're sort of inter interrelated. But the equivalent of a referendum in terms of parliamentary reform is all party support yeah. of your measure. Exactly. And so they don't have that. There are measures that the Liberals are wanting to push that both the Conservatives and the NDP hate. And so these parties have started a filibuster. Uh, so Liberals or the Conservatives and the NDP have teamed up to filibuster the meeting. And the way the filibuster works in this committee is that MPs are entitled to speak for yeah. as long as they want on a given topic. Yeah. And as many times as they want. Yeah, and this isn't US-style filibustering where they just like give notice of intent to filibuster and something dies. It's like they have to do it. They have to legitimately filibuster. Earlier yeah. this week, uh, Garnet Genius, or Genius, depending on how you uh, pronounce Genuine? it. Genuine? Yeah, um, yeah. I've, I've never been sure. Um, spoke for 10 hours. He stood he up. He seems and... like the type who could. <laughs> he stood up and spoke for ten hours. The process is sort of interesting, though, because the liberals, uh, having the majority of the committee, are able to dictate when the committee sits right. and what hours of operation it has. So they have said, "Okay, let's let's run your filibuster. Let's see how committed you are to it. Let's run the committee until midnight." And so MPs are forced to stand up and test. speak until midnight. And then they can say, okay, and then we'll have it at 6 a.m. the next day. What is important to understand about committees, um, and don't necessarily quote me on this, but every member of parliament can be a member of every committee. So MPs are able to cycle out whoever they want. Yeah, House leaders can do that. Like, yeah, through yeah. the committee at sort of or a moment's notice. Is it whips? It might be whips. Anyway, it's either House yeah. leaders or whips. Basically, the parties like House leadership teams can move people in and out of committees. Yeah, so it's not the same four people from the Conservatives or the NDP that have to speak, you know, right. at length. In normal situations, you like parties tend to want stability so people can build some expertise and etc. But like if need be, they can move people in and out. Yeah, you can at will. Cycle through as many MPs as you want. And what what this means is that the Conservatives and the NDP among them have a hundred and 30, 150 yeah. um, MPs that they can tap to literally sit in this committee and keep talking. Yeah. And just keep talking. And the only uh, limits is relevance and repetition. They can be declared out of order if they talk about the same thing too many times. Okay. Or so it used to be, like in the States, there used to be the you know the classic stories of like... Uh, reading the dictionary? Not dictionary, it was uh, cookbooks. Cookbooks, yeah, yeah like, uh, anything along those traditional lines. Traditional recipes, etc. So you can't do that type of filibustering committee. You have to stay on topic, but that is a very broadly defined. Mm -hmm. um, so whether it's constituent stories or letters from your constituents, I've seen done before. 
Um, if you want to read... That's the, interesting. Are they, but they're doing that, yeah, right, in committee instead of on in, the floor of the House. Because on the floor of the House, all the members' words have to be their own. Correct. Yeah. So, um, the MP's name is eluding me here. Uh, I believe it was Shannon Stubbs, who's an MP from Alberta, um, who actually did something sort of similar where, uh, at a very important committee where, of course, you had all the officials testifying, she sort of solo filibustered it and read letters from her constituents yeah. at, at length, stalling the whole committee. All the officials were sat there <laughs> and forced to hear from her constituents about their decision to close a... Uh, not was the Vagerville, the, like, whatever it was, Veterans Office? No, it wasn't Veterans. I believe it was uh, Immigration. Okay. Immigration or CVSA. It was some kind of government frontline service. Yeah, and it was it was axing dozens of jobs and moving them into a big city, but she was able to uh, stand there and make them all hear the impact that it was having. Yeah. So this this is that's, sort of how this tool is job. used. Yeah, it's Parliament doing its job, uh, which is so, good. So what I hear about PROC is that um, the filibuster is set to continue and that the parties are effectively making plans to schedule MPs to be in committee as required until yeah. the end of until the end of the until the house rises at the yeah. end of summer so they still someone blinks basically absolutely and it will and probably be the government yeah to make a uh, to make a prediction here i would say that the liberals fold on this one it's hard on this kind of thing to get your way if you just don't have the buy-in from the other parties it really is yeah the ri- the risk reward here isn't great yeah um in terms of putting through these tweaks and it's something that will sort of tr- ebb and flow in terms of yeah. journalistic coverage but especially because there's no clear win for them like in terms of public relations like there is in terms of like they might be able to get their legislative agenda through a little quicker but it just seems like the loss in like it makes the opposition really really mad for one yes uh and they will be uncooperative on other stuff yeah uh they, 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 exactly like the risk reward here and the sort of cost benefit is not in the government's favor at all to like have an extended fight with the opposition about parliamentary reform yeah it's very much another iteration of sort of was it bill not bill uh motion six motion six yeah motion that six. was uh, the dominic leblanc's uh, sort of Last act as a, or you know, sort of last chapter as House leader uh, was pissing off everyone else to the point where they couldn't work with him anymore. Yeah, and very much the same. The same things are at stake here, where the suspension of the standing orders, or sort of substantively altering the standing orders, although not suspending them. Yeah. Um, in order for them to be less efficient for opposition to use. Yeah. Okay. Uh, next up, we have another budget that came down this week, as mentioned at the beginning of the episode. Uh, Saskatchewan tabled its budget on the same day as the federal budget, because Brad Wall is nothing if not a master of timing. That's uh, just how fiscal calendars work. Yeah. Well, also, I don't know. Usually people can manage to find a different day. Perhaps it's because he didn't want it in the news. Uh, and I wouldn't blame him. Uh, Brad Wall has run... So, for context here... I used to live in Saskatchewan. I lived there for, for about 10 months. Uh, I was very, very heavily involved in, uh, in politics there for the, you know, helping out with the NDP for a federal election campaign and then the provincial election campaign six months later. Uh, I, I came to really not like Brad Wall by the end of my time there. Shocker. Uh, yeah, no, I know. Shocker very, that, very surprisingly. that you would not enjoy Brad Wall. No, I, very surprising. But um, Brad Wall, uh, so this new budget is, is another deficit budget, which, you know, Fine, whatever. Saskatchewan is in a, a rough place fiscally because since the resource downturn, uh, growth has slowed quite a bit in the biggest cities. Like you'll note, vacancy rates um, have gone up a lot in Saskatoon, where I used to live. Um, I I feel like we kind of got out like right when things were getting quite bad, uh, or you know, worse substantially than they had been since the boom. Uh, and this budget, I think, is is pretty pretty bad. Like they're raising the PST by a point, which once again, in isolation, is not something I don't like. Uh, and it's probably something they needed to do, but they're also cutting the corporate income tax rate by a point, which seems like you, if your job is, or if your your aspiration is to close the deficit as quickly as possible, cutting a point off the corporate income tax rate doesn't seem like the thing that you should be doing in that situation. Uh, and also, it's just a really bad look when you're raising the you know broad-based consumption tax that everyone pays, but cutting the corporate income tax that corporations pay. I have my issues with corporate income tax. I don't think it's that good a tax. It's inefficient, and a lot of the costs get passed on. But even then, like, not the time to cut it, and especially not in the same budget that you're raising the PST. 
Uh, also, they're shutting down the Saskatchewan Transportation Company, which is the crown corporation that runs bus services between between small towns and big cities and between who, small towns and other who small knew? towns. No one knew this existed outside of Saskatchewan. No, but it's actually a really, really important institution in Saskatchewan. If you are an old person or a young person or just someone who doesn't own a car and you live in a small town in Saskatchewan, Greyhound doesn't serve those. And cabs, obviously, are going to be you know ridiculous to go to a big city or even to another town. So you, you really relied on the STC to get you places. Like if you want to go, you know, if your grandmother wants to go visit your kid in you know, Prince Albert or Saskatoon, the, that's the best option for you. And now that's gone, or it's going to be gone very soon. Uh, I think that will actually have a fairly long-lasting and very negative effect on a lot of the rural communities that are the SAS party's base. As you say this, you know what I'm hearing? I'm hearing an argument for Uber to get into this market. I it wouldn't. They couldn't. They don't. The SEC <laughs> doesn't make money, right? But it's not because it's not even supposed to be profitable. It's just like it's a lifeline. Like that the rule. Like if if you want to say everyone should be urbanized and just live in big cities, that that's all well and good. But if you want, if you value rural small towns and think that they're an important part of Saskatchewan's social fabric, you don't yank the rug out from under them like that. I mean. So I, I can't really comment. I'm not from Saskatchewan. I learned about this today. Um, I, I just see parallels between, or uh, perhaps the opposite, no parallels between other provinces where Alberta manages without, with a substantial rural communities, yeah. with, without a dedicated government-run bus line. So, like... A, a limited take from me, but that's sort of where I, I how Saskatchewan I approach it. Is Be the it ride sharing, or it, yeah. it provides the opportunity for other things to come in. And to Saskatchewan close this gap. is the most is the province with the most local municipal governments in the country by a long shot, uh, like hundreds. Uh, there are tons and tons of very very small communities to a degree that there aren't in other provinces. Like the province, the the population is much more spread out. Uh, so I really do think this is going to be very bad uh, just as a policy effect and very bad for the wall government politically because it's very popular for the obvious reason that it provides a valuable service at low cost to people who need do, it. Do we know what the cost of 17 million a year. 17 mil? Okay. So that's what they're saving. So I personally don't think that's worth it and I think it's a mean-spirited cut, but there we go. They're also cutting uh, a lot of funding to libraries and to universities, um, which is unfortunate. Once again, rural libraries are, you know, in small towns, often your only civic institutions are going to be the post office, the library, and the public school. And uh, if the library then can't offer programming, it's just another reason for young people to leave the small towns that they grew up in, which is a trend that's already happening, obviously. But I, once again, just accelerating it just seems needless and kind of cruel. Um, I, yeah, don't share your opinion on a lot of these. Um, libraries, I think, are obviously important institutions. But that being said, I don't see it really... Like, I don't see youth tapping into the programming at libraries. I, I see libraries as important for... Honestly, I think the most important thing they provide these days is free access to computers. Yeah. Um, for individuals doing job hunt who don't have computers they, at their fingertips. I've seen some but small even, communities that are cutting, like, uh, internet access to things like audiobooks and, like, ebooks that they access. Like, it's it's it just seems like why would you... Like, why is that where you would cut and... I Maybe mean, don't cut the corporate income tax, save the library, save the STC. I don't know. I just I found it mean-spirited. Um, I agree, don't, don't, <laughs> that, don't agree as much. I'm, that not, is I'm not sure I would see malice in many of these actions. Well, no, I don't think it's it's malice-based. I don't think like Brad Wall is sitting there like rubbing his hands with glee uh, at you know taking away the STC and libraries from people. I, I, like, I don't think he's like, haha, this is great. But on the other hand, I think it just like that's where his priorities are. That a corporate income tax rate cut of one percent was like, well, we need to do that, but people don't need these things. However, I, I think this is sort of the classic conservative NDP split here <laughs> in terms of what you get for a corporate uh, income tax yeah. cut. The idea is to draw in more business, create more uh, in a. Not more innovation, but more incentive yeah, but for organizations to come in and I to work there the, and to... I understand the theory behind having a low corporate income tax rate, but a 1% corporate income tax rate for Saskatchewan, which has a primarily resource-driven economy anyway, and which is basically driven by commodity prices rather than income tax rates, I don't see the point. Especially not in a deficit budget where you're saying, we are making drastic cuts to try to get back to balance within three, four years. It just seems like, why would you do that? 
You know what? I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and play a comment on this one because <laughs> I, I don't know Saskatchewan well enough that uh, is fair. to argue it's economics. But I that's, just, that's sort of the angle that they, yeah. they're No, yeah, from. for sure. Like, it, but I just think it's it's a, getting to be a fairly tired government that is uh, growing more unpopular and making kind of worse decisions with less the, and less humility. The most popular still. It is, it is, which is, uh, I think, a testament to how good the rest of the provincial premier stable is. Um, I mean, he's at like fifty-eight percent or something. He is an incredibly personable guy. Very, very popular. He's incredibly personable, uh, very charismatic in his own way. Um, It's a charm that really appeals to people from Saskatchewan. I never really got it. It is not one that speaks to me, but fair enough. Uh, But yeah, I just wanted to talk about the Sask budget because I think if you're not in Saskatchewan, you won't hear a lot about it. And the sort of media narrative nationally on Brad Wall is that he's good and everyone likes him. But I think like. I would be willing to bet that that will change fairly quickly. To sort of borrow a talking point from Jesse Brown, um, in terms of you don't see much coverage of it, I just think it's sort of from a, a comms angle. It's sort of interesting to note that there are no full-time recorder, uh, reporters yep. dedicated to uh, covering the Saskatchewan legislature. Yeah, which is, I mean, part of that is because it's been such a snooze. It's basically just like the SAS party does whatever it wants and the NDP opposition is small and not really able to do a whole lot. Um, so, yeah, no, that's, that is true. It's a good point. I'd kind of forgotten that little tidbit, but it is an important one. I think it's a trend, too, that you're going to see fewer and fewer reporters in provincial legislatures, uh, which is super unfortunate because they, you know, run frontline services that most people use all the time, schools, hospitals, etc., uh, you know, getting your driver's license, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it is certainly negative that in, you know, a, uh, a developed country such as ours, that in a province of a million or two million people that were unable to provide reporters to cover uh, sort of our institutions, which yeah. I, I think is an important aspect to democracy in Canada and democracy anywhere, is that I think... Um, one of the things that leads to corruptions and scandals in small towns is a lack of accountability yeah, well, because there aren't the, the institutions of reporters, you know, keep, keeping people honest, putting, shining the daylight into, uh, into government. There's a famous story in New Brunswick uh, from a couple years ago where there was a, a big storm that knocked out power in Fredericton uh, while the legislature was sitting. So the cameras were all off, and in that time, like between the the power going out and them getting it back on, the MPs had voted, or the the MLA, sorry, had voted themselves a pension increase. Um, <laughs> what? This makes no sense. Yeah, no, it's great. Like, I can just imagine, like the the thunder, the lightning is on. Yeah. Everyone starts looking at the cameras. The little red blinky yeah. light goes <laughs> off. All in favor of raising our pensions. That, Aye. That is pre- unanimous. Done. It is pretty much what happened. <laughs> yeah, it, it's pretty messed up. Um, okay, the other. Big news story of this week. So, yeah, thanks for bearing with my rant on Saskatchewan there. Um, is the Lafayre Potter. The Potter, uh, Pottergate? Indeed. I think Pottergate, we're the Jesus. first ones to call it that, but we're going to call it Pottergate. I like Lafayre Potter, just because, you know, good bilingual name. So, do you want to give a one-minute summary of who is Andrew Potter? And... Andrew Potter is an academic who ran, he was editor-in-chief of the Ottawa Citizen for a while. He now lives in Quebec, uh, in Montreal. Uh, and is the head of McGill's Institute for Canadian Studies, or Institute for the Study of Canada, rather. Uh, And he wrote a bad take uh, a week ago about how Quebec society is dysfunctional. And, which is, you know, that's his prerogative. That's fine. Uh, And then his employer, McGill, sort of disavowed it, and then he ended up stepping down from his role as uh, head of the Institute, which is super messed up, and they should not have done that. And also, he was censured, I think. Did the Quebec National Assembly do this again? Yes. Yeah. That's that's the part I actually want to talk about here. Yeah. There have been a million takes on Potter's article, um, which just out of interest, you, sh- you should read to sort of see what it is and get the full context. Um, it was published in Maclean's. If you look up Andrew Potter Maclean's, you'll be able to find it. Um, but there have been a million takes on whether or not what Potter wrote was, you know, factually correct or, you know, improper for X reason or Y reason. But what we're seeing coming out of this is, once again, the Assemblée Nationale, which is the French or the Quebec Legislative Assembly. Also the French Legislative Assembly, but... <laughs> yes. You want to actually... Do you want to talk about the history of why it's called the Assemblée Nationale? Duplessis changed the name. Yeah. Or did he? Was it Duplessis? I used to know this. Yeah, it was Duplessis. In what year? Like oh, geez. Early 19... It would have been 40s or 50s. No, no. Or, yeah, sorry. Way, yeah, way yeah. before that. 
as a sort of last minute attempt to appeal to sovereignists, and yeah. he, I believe, lost the election. You know, afterwards. I think I think we got that really wrong. So I'm just gonna we're just gonna <laughs> check whatever the actual fact on that is and put it in the show notes so we don't sound like total idiots. That's fair. Yeah. Um, so the Assemblée Nationale voted to effectively condemn, not condemn to anything. Censure is probably the better word here. Yeah. Um, Andrew Potter for his take, but this has created a, you know. A long string of precedences of the Assembly Nationale doing this to yeah. various journalists and, and colonists. Parliament has done this too. Parliament has, fairness. and I think they are both improper. I agree. And I don't think that politicians should use their soapbox to be critical of journalists or colonists or to call them well, out. And to really, like, particularly using the institution of government. Yeah, to do it. that's the what's well, it should be careful to distinguish here it's not the government right it is yeah, the legislature sorry. the, so the no... institution of the legislature yeah. or the parliament yes uh, but i i agree with that i mean especially because in the past these takes have been like controversial but not like you know they're not insane yeah exactly like they're not they're not like coming out of absolutely nowhere letter of like totally unwarranted and like completely like it's within the realm of like civilized discussion basically i i think you can disagree with it and think like I question the assumptions that brought you to this place, and like I think they're bad, and you should examine them. But I, yeah, I agree that like it's not the role of the legislature to do that. So it's worth noting a couple of these. There was, I think, one of the first ones, at least in my recent memory, has been Jan Wong. Yeah, that was kind of the big uh, uh, who, point. Globe and Mail journalist who wrote a piece about shootings in Quebec, I believe it was. Mm, and it was the corruption one. No, actually, Jan's right. It was uh, school shootings. The, the 10 second fact check there yeah um yeah so jen wong was the first one she had one about uh shootings in quebec uh more recently there was jj mccullough right uh who wrote another one about shootings in quebec yeah. um there was uh mclean's magazine had one about corruption yes in that quebec. was the, the bonhomme and yes um and all of these have been censured to some degree by parliament or by the assemblée nationale yeah and i think it's high time for politicians to stop you know, using their podiums to censure columnists yep, I, or otherwise. I honestly totally agree with that. I do want to take a... Because I feel like a lot of the discussion around this has been totally absent of, like, Francophone Quebec voices. Like, there was the Jesse Brown thing where he had, like, Jen Gerson on, who is a National Post columnist, lives in Alberta. And it was... And Jesse Brown was like, oh, well, I went to McGill, so I understand Quebec. And it's like, okay, dude. Um, I think... And this, is, this isn't just my experience... As a, I think as an Anglo Quebecois. Well, like, I'm I'm francophone, right? Like my family is, is francophone. I grew up speaking French. Um, I think it's very okay in most of the country to just have a hostility to French Quebecois people. Um, Sorry, what? It's like when I, for instance, when I lived in Saskatchewan. Here's a couple couple anecdotes from my experience. When I lived in Saskatchewan and I was going door to door in the federal election for the NDP. I would knock on doors. People would, you know, I'd say, hi, I'm, you know, here with or for this candidate. And they would say, I don't like Tom Mulcair. He's too French. Or like, I don't trust him. He's from Quebec. Uh, like, just people would just say that to me, right? They didn't know. I don't sound French. So, and I don't like, you know, I, I do look French, actually. But like, I guess they don't see the subtlety. But um, it, people would just be very comfortable telling me that as someone they don't know at all, that they do not like someone because he is from Quebec or French. Uh, I've also found that there's just an assumption that it's okay to ask people about their political opinions that are like fairly personal as like the first question when you meet someone. So I was at a, a Red Blacks Rough Riders game last okay. last fall and uh, we were next to two two women from Gatineau and uh, some other fellows from Ottawa and they, they started talking to each other and you know they mentioned that, oh yeah, you know, we're from Gatineau. And literally the first question after saying that, the guys were like, oh, are you guys separatists? Which is like... Who the hell, like, why would you think it's okay to just ask someone that, like, as the first question, like, oh, this is the relevant, I don't know. I do think that there's actually, and it, Jesus Christ, when I lived in New Brunswick, for instance, as well, uh, there was this whole crisis there that basically ended up bringing down the liberal government in the next election that they were going to sell NB power to Idol Quebec, right? Um, and they were like, oh, this is about, you know, selling, selling us to the damned Quebecers. And, like, there's a, a lot of hostility to Quebec in New Brunswick, uh, especially because there they have the French minority as well. Uh, so that's just my personal experience. I do think that there is like a totally acceptable anti-French bias in lots of Anglophone society that people are very comfortable expressing publicly to people they barely know. So that's my experience. I don't know. Uh, you want to tie this back into the 
Well, yeah, it's just I just think like a lot of the, uh, the a lot of the discussion around the Andrew Potter thing is just sort of like taken for granted that like the take was correct and that like there's no need to actually talk to French people about what they think and that like oh how dare Quebecois people ever feel offended by anything Anglophones say and like why are they so defensive and it's like well like frankly my experience as someone who is francophone like I like like all those stories that I just told you guys like I just think that this bias or like you know soft bigotry kind of just exists and is a fact that of life that I've experienced on multiple occasions it's never really disadvantaged me or anything because like I present as very anglophone and I can you know speak unaccented English but it's just like something that exists I guess we'll leave it at that all right so Quebec um the NDP yes had another leadership debate today they did, and they also have a fifth candidate. A who's fifth candidate, so joining the race, but wasn't in the debate today. No, he was not. So he's been confirmed by the party. Yep. Um, and he's a professor of business, I think, at at one of the at UCAM, maybe. He's basically a nobody. So like, I don't. Isn't he also hawking merchandise of some sort? <laughs> he's also a leadership consultant. He's so a leadership I, consultant. I am looking forward to finding out which animal's leadership style he will be promoting. <laughs> Rhino leadership <Yeah. laughs> presented by, what's his name? Remind me. Bruno. Jeez, I don't remember the last name. You know, honestly, it's irrelevant. I don't even feel bad. That's, that's yeah. fair. Yeah. Do we know? So he's a leadership consultant, or sorry, yeah, leadership consultant. As well as like business professor. I yeah. look forward to uh, purchasing his t-shirts. Yeah, well, honestly, like we are very seriously considering getting some Pat Stogren merch. As yeah. soon as it goes back up in the uh, in the online store, I'll be happy to. Uh... Yeah, I just want the Gorilla Leader like crest. That thing is so cool. You guys, honestly, if you haven't checked out the Gorilla Leadership website, please do. You like it, we? I know we told you guys this last week, but like, please, please, please do it. It's so good. So quickly, what's your take on the NDP debate that happened today? So it's the NDP Youth Debate, yeah. uh, held by the I hate that youth wing. NDP consists. party, come on, you right. NDP. <laughs> the non the non bread. Um, and it was in Montreal. Yes. And it featured four candidates, same yep. four as last time, sort of going at it. Very similar format by the looks of it. Yep. Uh, and also very, very heavy on the French, unsurprisingly. It's in Montreal. Yeah. Uh, I've noticed that, yes, thus far, um, the NDP debates have been quite genuinely bilingual in a way that I do not remember them being this bilingual last time. But then again, it's been a while. Uh, so if anyone wants to share their impressions of that, I'd be happy to hear them. Um uh, but and especially compared to the Conservative Party debates, they are very, very bilingual. I mean, the ones so far have been in Ottawa and Montreal. Yeah, both bilingual yeah, sure. areas. Sure. So I, I think that's pretty uh, par for the course. There. I guess we'll see what happens when they move west and uh, like yeah, the next when, once in... once you're in Alberta or wherever. Yeah. I think Ooh, you'll... Well, controversially, they're not doing. Oh yeah, yeah, you're right. Uh, I think the next one is in Saskatoon in May. I believe. I have to stay out of Rachel Notley's sort of uh, jurisdiction. <laughs> Don't want to start talking no pipelines in Calgary. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, it's a, the, the politics, of, politics of that are tricky, uh, and you know, a lot, a lot of people say, or a lot of people, some people think that the uh, federal and provincial wings should deaffiliate. Uh, it's kind of a controversy within the party. It would, I think, avoid some of this awkwardness and perhaps unmuddy the waters a little bit. So do you quickly want to explain Oh yeah, deaffiliation? Sure. That's a good point, because the NDP is the only party where this is the case. If you're a member of the provincial party, you're automatically a member of the federal party and vice versa, and you can't be a member of other parties. So it does create a little bit of awkwardness where you kind of have to have like a lockstep vision, uh, which can be awkward because different regions have different interests, you know, and the electorates are in different places. So it's, it's, it just creates a lot of difficulties for the party. I get the theory behind it. Uh, and honestly, for in my own personal experience, I like I got started with the party in New Brunswick, left to, to go to live in Scotland for a year to, for grad school and moved to Saskatchewan when I came back and like just went to the campaign office and said, hey, like I've been involved in New Brunswick. And it was just like, OK, like you remember the family and like it was within, you know, couple weeks i was like basically in that campaign and like I, I integrated would... in the sort of like saskatoon ndp community which is really cool i'm not sure that has anything to do with their affiliations though. no like formally like... no but i do think that there is a mindset in the ndp that like an ndp is an ndp or like no matter where you are and i think part of that i don't know how much the actual formal affiliation really really matters i do think that it would be sad for the ndp to lose that sort of like cross-national isn't this also hurting the NDP in Quebec because there's no provincial NDP counterpart so that their sort of their base yes, in Quebec is... Yes, and they're awkward is... because you sort of have to dance a very fine line around 
the fact that the center-right party is federalist and the center-left party is sovereigntist, so it's kind of... Yeah, yeah there's, there's no real connection or no counterpart there. Yeah, well, you, and you can't endorse the PQ, because obviously, like, you just can't. And you can't endorse the liberals, because obviously you just can't. So it's very much no win for them in Quebec politics. Uh, it makes things very awkward for federal uh, politicians in the NDP because when they're asked to comment on Quebec politics, they have to be incredibly circumspect. Um, so yeah, that's uh, at least some difficulties. Fair enough. We will leave you uh, this week with a story. My story. Etienne's story. So this is when I was working as a communication staffer in a minister's office. And we were having a minister of the French government, uh, who will go unnamed, um, to the department to sign a memorandum of understanding so, or something along these lines. a point of clarification. When you say minister, do you mean like a, a minister in the same way that we mean minister or like a diplomatic official? No, an actual minister. Okay. A, a counterpart of the minister. Gotcha. Um, of the French government. And the French government, of course, uh, is socialist. Right. Um, so there's like naturally just that sort of latent tension there. Yeah. Well, I mean, like... they're barely. Anyway, carry on. <laughs> my, my views on French politics notwithstanding. Um, so we're having them, and the minister, because of unforeseen circumstances, is uh, incredibly late to the meeting. Uh, Your minister or theirs? My minister. Okay. Um, so there's, of course, this tension. Um, but my minister is incredibly charming. And in a very weird way, yes. <laughs> is, is incredibly charming. And so he, um, he bonds with the minister immediately and makes profuse apologies. And they sit down to sign this memorandum of understanding. So let's backtrack a few minutes here. About an hour beforehand, we're prepping for this sit-down meeting, as well as the signing. And there, this is going to be on uh, video, and there's going to be pictures of it taken. And so we're looking for fancy pens. We need two fancy pens that aren't like a uniball sort of deal um, for the signing. And we go to one of the senior officials' office. And he's not there. And so we ask his, his EA or his aide, um, his assistant, if we can borrow one of his pens or two of his pens. And she's sort of hesitant, but we sort of, so it was me and uh, a member of the communications team. And we sort of talk her into it. And you can tell she's not really comfortable with it, but we're like, don't worry, don't yeah. worry. It'll, cla it'll classic boys in short pants bullying <laughs> civil servants. It'll it'll be like five minutes. It's just signing. Like, what's the worst that can happen? So we get these two pens and we put them down on the paper, and then fast forward, the ministers sign the agreement, and my minister gifts the pen. <laughs> And he has no idea where they're coming from. He has right? no idea. They're just pens on the table, and it's like this fancy-looking pen. He gifts the pen to the French minister. And I'm actually not in the room for this. I was back at my desk doing some other media stuff. And the comms official from the department comes to my office and goes, the minister gave away the pen we borrowed. And my initial reaction was, not a big deal. Listen, if it's a, you know, a, a $30, $40 pen, I'll, I'll buy a new one. Like, I'll do it out of pocket, whatever. This, this isn't a big deal. Um, we'll have to apologize to the senior official, but I'm, I'm sure we'll be able to sort this out. What we didn't realize until a few minutes later was that this pen is a Mont Blanc. Oh, dear. Which is like a $900 pen. And it was a sentimental pen in that the senior official had gotten it from, like, family for when he was appointed to his position, or there, there's some backstory to this pen. So this is not so just... So basically, long and short of it, high emotional and monetary value. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> so you, like, took this dude's, like, gold teddy bear, basically. Very much so. And so you have sort of this oh shit moment <laughs> where you're like, what do we do? And so because the minister was late to the meeting, um, and he was trying to make it up, to minister uh, to the minister, he uh, went with her to her next meeting, and so he was like, "Yeah, we can take my car. Like, come with me." All because she was meeting another minister, um, so she was like, "Yeah, absolutely, not a problem." She goes with my minister to Parliament to meet uh, the then justice minister, and so we're brainstorming, and we basically pull in a bunch of people from the team to be like. 
what do we do? Like, do we do we send around a collection? How do we get this pen back? And so it sort of goes stated that there's no way we can charge the government for a $900 pen. Like, it, yeah, it's just... when you're talking about $16 orange juices, bring, <laughs> yeah. bringing down ministers, a $900 pen wouldn't look Like, right. this is completely out of the question. Yeah. So the next one becomes, how do we get the pen back? The pen that has been given away as a gift to a foreign dignitary. Correct. Yes. And so the member of the staff who is with the minister is very much the perfect individual for this task. He is the, like, no questions, get it done. And I remember sending the message to him on BBM, sending, we need to get the pen back. Um, you need to ask the minister for it. Like, it costs $900. This is our only option. And I still remember him sending me, like, three emoticons of, like, blank faces, and then an emoticon of, like, a crying face. <laughs> and, and he Jesus. was like... And then he was like, don't worry, I'm on it. And so what he did was he goes to the French minister's staffer and he says, take, takes him aside and is hoping that this uh, individual will be understanding. And he says, listen, you know, this pen was accidentally gifted. It has sentimental value. Could we get that back? And the French, the French staffer's response is, what do you have to offer for it? <laughs> And so the member from our office, being the problem solver that he is, basically lifts an item from the justice minister's bookcase. That is very practical. <laughs> it still had like some sort of like name tag on it or something, but lifts an item from the bookcase and is like, here you go. Like we are going to re-gift exchange this. So this is then offered to the French minister in exchange for the pen back. And so the pen is recovered mere hours later after being gifted and all is well that ends well that that is honestly like very easily could be a thick of it bit a thick of it or yes minister or something along these lines the, 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 also, the yeah. amount of mental effort that went into that pen that day was I, astonishing the, the lesson here is that government is a lot more stupid than you could ever <laughs> really imagine just these things happen just these human you know we were talking about fog of war earlier this episode like this this is that yeah, just like, human... It's just someone missed a small bit of information that seemed inconsequential, and it cascaded into a... Whole chain of events. Yeah. So let that be a lesson to you. Yeah, this, this story sort of lives in infamy at the department still, because there were so many, both political and civil staff, or, or uh, civil servant officials, roped in on uh, tracking back this pen. Beautiful. So that will do it for the boys in short pants this week. Yeah, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, as always, please uh, please uh, give us a review on iTunes. I saw someone said we're, we're super Anglo-Canadian last week. was like, oh, they sound French, but anyway. I, yeah, think, so I, think perhaps, the, uh, I think that was the guys over from Politico. So. Well, they've proved my point. <laughs> what, we've learnt, uh, what we've learnt from today is also, or from this past week, is that our audience is terrible at writing and reviewing. Yeah, and, please uh, be better at that. Do better, guys. Lest Do the better. intern doesn't get fed this week. Yeah. Yeah, I will stop feeding Hugo the intern. Um, and it will be on, on your consciences. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.